The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis. And today, the next passage we come to is Genesis chapter 41, verse 46, through chapter 42, verse 38. So I'll be reading a selection of verses from that passage. It says, So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He said, the one who sold to all the people, he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said, they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men... Let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother here to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen." That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. 
At this, their hearts failed them, and they, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Shane. Let's pray this morning. Father, we find it written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So help us, God, to view your word that way this morning. Not merely as an interesting subject for study or as a helpful resource for various situations, but as our very life. (laughs) May we experience it as that, through the ministry of your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. More often than not, uh, from what I've observed, uh, people in our society tend to have a relatively high view of their own moral goodness. I think most people consider themselves to be good people, at least by their own standards of goodness, and are often unaware of the ways in which they fall short of God's moral standards. And uh, this is why you'll often hear me explaining about, uh, from the pages of Scripture, about how we have sinned against God and transgressed his law, and, and deserve his judgment. And that's because in a society that continually affirms how good we supposedly are, people need to hear about that stuff. They need to hear about their sin and, and their need, the need all of us have for a Savior. So I try to be faithful to emphasize that Sunday after Sunday. However, there are also times when people already feel the burden of their sins. They know they've done wrong and are plagued by a nagging sense of guilt. Maybe they've hurt someone in a significant way or been unfaithful to their spouse or failed to be a good parent or have gotten to where they are today through some sort of dishonesty or done something else that they know is wrong, and they're deeply troubled by the thought of what they've done and plagued by their guilty conscience day after day. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you feel like you're carrying around an enormous backpack on your back filled with the heavy weight of the wrongs you've done. And maybe these are things you've done in the past or even things you're currently doing in the present. And the guilt and shame that you feel because of these things is weighing you down. And sometimes it seems unbearable. So how can we respond to these feelings of guilt, this nagging sense of guilt in a healthy way? And ultimately, how can we be free from that? Well, that's what we'll be discussing this morning from this passage here in Genesis 41 and 42. Now, the previous chapters of Genesis record how Joseph's brothers were so jealous of Joseph that they sold him into slavery in Egypt. And yet, during his time in Egypt, Joseph eventually 
rose to become the second in command of Egypt. And he now has the task of selling grain from the Egyptian storehouses to the people of Egypt and also from the surrounding nations uh, during this severe famine that was taking place in that region of the world. We then learn in Genesis 42, 1 through 3, that when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. We then read in verses 6 through 11, Now Joseph was the governor of the land. He was the one who sold all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. I said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. So, Joseph undoubtedly looked a lot different as a high-ranking Egyptian official than he had as a country boy from Canaan. Uh, Following Egyptian customs, Joseph's beard had likely been shaven off, and his clothing probably consisted of white linen garments uh, decked out with plenty of gold and other decorative features that were common among the Egyptian aristocracy. And he was, of course, also speaking the Egyptian language. And so his brothers, understandably, didn't recognize him. But he, of course, did recognize them. And he uses that to his advantage in verses 9 and 10, accusing them of being spies sent to see how depleted Egypt's resources are. And he then continues to act as though he believes they're spies in the subsequent verses. He says to them in verses 15 through 17, By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother, that would be Benjamin, while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Then as we continue on, we won't read the whole thing, but after the three days, Joseph turns, um, he only keeps back Simeon uh, in Egypt and sends the rest of them back to Canaan with the grain that they went to get and uh, also instructions to bring their youngest brother, Benjamin, back to Egypt with them. And listen to how they interpret their predicament in verses 21 through 24. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. This would be Joseph now that they're talking about, not Benjamin. In that, we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. 
Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Joseph then does something even more unexpected in verses 25 through 28. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? Then, uh, just to summarize, after Joseph's brothers get back home, they discover that all of them, not just the one brother, but all of them have actually had their money put back in their sacks, and they start freaking out even more because they're afraid that Joseph will think they've stolen from him. And so the question that naturally comes to mind is, why is Joseph doing all this to them? Right? Now, at first glance, it might seem as though he's maybe taking revenge on them a little bit and retaliating for the hardships that they've brought to him by selling him into slavery. Yet I don't think that's the correct interpretation because if you remember, there was a point in the narrative recorded in verse 24 when Joseph is so overcome with emotion that he has to leave the room in order to weep. So Joseph, we see, isn't enjoying this. Right? He's not enjoying the misery that he's, that he's putting his brothers through. Instead, I believe the best interpretation is that Joseph's testing his brothers to see if they've changed at all since the last time he knew them. He needed to know who he was dealing with and uh, make sure that his brothers weren't that same ruthless lot that had previously discussed the idea of killing him and given serious consideration to that and then greedily uh, decided to line their pockets by selling him into slavery. Because if Joseph's brothers hadn't changed and he did receive them with open arms in Egypt, it was very possible that they would cause significant trouble for him there. Perhaps their ruthless and violent tendencies would lead them to commit certain crimes in Egypt and end up dragging Joseph down with them. And so Joseph had to know their character. And that's why he tests them as he does in this passage. His tactics are certainly a bit severe, but it's hard to think of any other way in which he can accurately assess their present character. Yet the aspect of this passage I find most interesting is what Joseph's testing reveals about his brothers. Joseph's testing reveals that they're still plagued by a guilty conscience. That's what I believe is actually the main idea of this entire passage. Joseph's testing of his brothers reveals that they are still plagued by a guilty conscience. Look back at verse 21. After Joseph's brothers have been in jail for three days and are now being commanded by Joseph to leave one of their number in Egypt while the rest of them go back home to retrieve Benjamin, notice how they interpret their situation. 
Specifically, notice why they think this difficulty has come upon them. Verse 21, then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Isn't that fascinating? It's now been about 20 years since they sold Joseph into slavery. And the guilt of what they've done is still plaguing them to such an extent that when a significant difficulty arises, they instinctively assume that it must be God punishing them for what they did to their brother. This is confirmed in verse 22. We read, And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Now, back in Genesis 27, Reuben had tried to rescue Joseph from the plot of the rest of the brothers, as he says here. And he succeeded in saving Joseph's life. You know, they were going to kill him. The reason they didn't is because Reuben worked it out so they wouldn't. And uh, yet he failed to keep his brothers from their fateful decision to sell Joseph into slavery. And Reuben now interprets this crisis situation in Egypt as, what does he say, a reckoning for Joseph's blood. In other words, according to Reuben, there is no doubt about it. Their current situation is divine payback for what they did to Joseph. Yet, in reality, as we can see from the larger context of Genesis, God is actually using this situation for their good. God's working behind the scenes through all of these events for the good of his people. And that even includes Joseph's brothers. Joseph's brothers needed to be brought face to face with what they had done and have their consciences awakened to the heinousness of their sin and ultimately come to genuine repentance. And that's what God does through Joseph in this passage. He graciously afflicts the consciences of Joseph's brothers and thereby leads them to repentance. You see, a guilty conscience is actually a wonderful thing because it alerts us to the fact that something's wrong. Kind of like your smoke detector going off in the middle of the night. You know, I don't think anyone has ever had their smoke detectors go off in the middle of the night and been awakened to discover a fire in their house and then complained about the smoke detectors waking them up, right? They are grateful that those smoke detectors woke them up. Or take physical pain as another example. The ability we have to experience Physical pain is a blessing, actually, because it usually alerts us to the fact that something's wrong and thereby prevents further damage from being done to our bodies. Like if you put your hand on a hot stovetop and you didn't feel anything, that wouldn't be good. Right? Severe damage, severe burns would be done to your hand. 
And by the way, I just learned not too long ago that this is actually why people with leprosy will sometimes lose fingers and toes and occasionally even arms and legs. It's not, uh, as I had previously assumed, because the leprosy directly causes the loss of these body parts, but rather because it damages the body's nervous system and causes the various body parts to become numb. And so when a person gets a cut or some type of injury on um, that part of their body, the injury will often go unnoticed and will often become infected. And because of that, uh, sometimes a body part like a finger or toe or arm or leg will have to be amputated. And so physical pain plays a critical role in protecting us from harm. The ability we have to feel pain is actually a blessing. Similarly, the, the fact that we have a conscience is a blessing as well. God's given us the capacity to experience guilt for the things we've done and thereby be alerted to the reality that something's wrong spiritually. A guilty conscience signals to us that we have a spiritual and moral problem that's going to lead to significant consequences if that problem isn't addressed. Not only that, it's also very dangerous to persist in a certain behavior when your conscience is making you feel uncomfortable because as you continue engaging in that behavior, your conscience gradually becomes desensitized to it. In the words of 1 Timothy 4, 2, it becomes seared. That's the word that the Apostle Paul uses. He's speaking of false teachers and refers to them as liars whose consciences are seared. In other words, they've lied so many times that they don't even feel bad about it any longer. Presumably, when they lied the first time, they did feel pretty bad. Then, when they lied again, they still felt bad, but not quite as bad as the first time. Then, when they lied a third time, they felt even less bad. And now, Paul says, they habitually tell lies and don't feel anything. Their consciences are seared. They've become thoroughly desensitized to that particular sin. This can also happen on a societal level as well. Uh, for example, I think it's pretty clear uh, that American society as a whole has become desensitized to certain things like sexual immorality and the murder of babies in the womb and also other things like the disrespect for parental authority. And also just basic dishonesty. I mean, we've come to a point where a politician can tell a bald-faced lie that everybody knows is a lie, and yet hardly anyone, especially in that person's own political party, even gives it a second thought. Like, that's just where we are as a society. It reminds me of Romans 1, where it states three times that God gave people up 
to their sinful desires. Romans 1.24 says that therefore, like because of their habitual sin, God gave them up, also translated gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And verse 26, two verses later, says it again. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then again in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So the point is that your conscience is something you don't want to ignore. I mean, there are certain things in this life, like certain warnings, that you can ignore pretty safely. Uh, for example, I routinely ignore uh, the check engine light on my car. And uh, usually that doesn't have any negative consequence. You know, of course, I've got to figure out what it is at least once a year to get it to pass inspection. But other than that, I usually ignore it, and it seldom causes me uh, significant difficulty. But a guilty conscience isn't like that. It, it, that is not something you can ignore because the consequences for ignoring that are both serious and eternal. So what should you do then if you have a guilty conscience? Well, one thing not to do, one one, one thing that people often try to do is to soothe their guilty conscience through various human methods. We try to cover our sin, as it were, in a variety of ways. And this goes all the way back to the first humans, Adam and Eve, trying to cover their nakedness in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3, 7 records how they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And ever since then, people have been doing that same basic thing, attempting to cover their spiritual nakedness with the fig leaves of their own morality. They might, for example, engage in acts of charity, giving their time and donating their money to various charitable causes. Or they might simply attempt to engage in various acts of kindness informally in their day-to-day lives. It all looks very good on the outside, and of course it does have some positive effects on the people around them, But on the inside, at times, these individuals in reality are trying to placate their guilty conscience. They're desperately trying to find relief from the feelings of guilt that continue to haunt them. And in some situations, people even resort to various forms of self-punishment in an attempt to placate their conscience. Uh, Back in medieval times, this took the form of many Uh, Catholic monks practicing self-flagellation where they would actually whip themselves, sometimes severely, in order to supposedly cleanse themselves of sin. And even though I haven't heard of anyone really doing that kind of thing today, uh, there are certainly ways in which we do try to, at times, placate our guilty conscience through self-punishment. It could be a a form of physical uh, self-punishment, as is sometimes the case with cutting, or an emotional or relational form of self-punishment. Yet if we're honest, I think 
we'd have to admit that none of these things is the answer. I believe God's designed the conscience in such a way that we all sense deep down that all of these human interventions are insufficient to deal with sin and with, to give us relief from guilt that we're looking for. None of them provides us with relief. In the Bible, it tells us why. It teaches us that the only adequate remedy for a guilty conscience is Jesus. Jesus is the only answer. He's the only solution to our sin problem. Jesus is God in human flesh and came to this earth in order to rescue us. And that involved living a perfectly sinless life, and then dying on the cross, allowing himself to be crucified on a Roman cross in order to make atonement on our behalf. He actually took our sins on himself and suffered the punishment for those sins so that we wouldn't have to. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead in order to complete his saving work. And as a result, we're told in Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I also love the way Paul describes it in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. He states that God forgave us all our trespasses, quote, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So Paul says that as a result of our sins, there was this record of debt that stood against us. We owed a debt to God's justice, a debt that was far beyond our ability to repent. And it's interesting that Paul refers to the existence of a record of debt, like a written ledger detailing line by line all of our sins and the debt we owed because of those sins. But what did Jesus do? Paul says that Jesus took that record of debt and he nailed it to the cross. All of our sins, all of our shame, Nailed to the cross of Jesus, never to be seen or read again. You know, at at the beginning, I said that many people, perhaps even some of you here today, are carrying around a backpack filled with the heavy weight of your sin. And wherever you go, that backpack goes with you weighing you down with guilt and shame. And that metaphor of a a backpack, a burden on our back, actually comes from John Bunyan in his classic work, Pilgrim's Progress, originally published back in the 1600s. In the book, a man named Christian is introduced to us as one who's carrying on his back a tremendous burden. 
this is all allegorical, so that burden, of course, represents sin. And Christian, the man in the story, complains to his family of being undone because of this awful burden that lies heavily upon him. A few pages later, he complains that this burden on his back is so great, he fears it'll sink him lower than the grave. So he travels all over the place looking for a way to get this burden off of him. He goes to this place and that place, to this person and that person. Yet as he continues his journey, the burden just keeps getting heavier and heavier to the point that he says he can't enjoy anything in this world. Then listen to the first two paragraphs of chapter 3. Now I saw in my dream Christian, the man, walking briskly up a highway fence on both sides with a high wall. He began to run, though he could not run fast because of the load on his back. On top of the hill, he came to a cross. Just as he got to the cross, his burden came loose, dropped from his shoulders, and went tumbling down the hill. It fell into an open grave, and I saw it no more. Now Christian's heart was light. He had found relief from his burden. He said to himself that he, that would be Jesus, has given me rest by his sorrows and life by his death. He stood gazing at the cross, wondering how the sight of the cross could so relieve one of guilt and shame. He no longer felt guilty of anything. His conscience told him that all his sins were forgiven. He now felt innocent, clean, happy, and free. He knew his sins had all been paid for by the death of the one who died on the cross. They were gone, buried in the Savior's tomb, right? Remember that open grave? And God would remember them against him no more forever. He was so thankful and so full of joy that tears began to flow. Likewise, this morning, no matter how great of a burden you're carrying, you can be free from that burden through Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's his invitation for you today. You don't have to go through your life the way Joseph's brothers did back in our main passage with the burden of sin on your shoulders. You can experience genuine and lasting relief from that burden through Jesus. In addition, as we think about the guilty conscience of Joseph's brothers back in Genesis 42, it's also important to note that even after we put our trust in Jesus and experience his forgiveness, God still continues to graciously make us aware of the sin in our lives. Now, this isn't to say that we should be feeling the same weight of condemnation that we felt before we embraced Jesus, but the Holy Spirit does expose our sins and, and, and lead us 
to repentance. Um, this is actually uh, something that we should be experiencing on a somewhat regular basis. Uh, we might even say it's one of the most important signs there is uh, that we have experienced genuine conversion and uh, that we are healthy as Christians. And more often than not, the instrument that the Holy Spirit uses to show us our sin is the Bible. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word in the Bible is a powerful thing. Right? It pierces and penetrates our hearts and exposes the sin in our lives. Right? That's what should be happening as you read the Bible. Right? That's how you know you're reading it correctly. <laughs> like if you read the Bible and the only thing you ever find it doing is affirming the way you're currently living, something's wrong there, right? You're not reading it correctly. Now, of course, there are plenty of ways in which the Bible is an incredible source of comfort and encouragement. Absolutely. But it's also true that the Bible steps on our toes and exposes our sins. You see, the Holy Spirit is like a master surgeon who skillfully uses the scalpel of Scripture to cut away from our lives everything that doesn't need to be there. All the pockets of spiritual cancer that'll prove harmful if they're not dealt with. So reading the Bible should be a mixture of comfort, yes, but also affliction. One way I've heard it phrased is that, is that the Holy Spirit uses the Bible to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. That is, he comforts those who are afflicted by their earthly circumstances and afflicts those who are comfortable in their sin. And in Genesis 42, God knows that Joseph's brothers need to be afflicted. So he graciously uses Joseph's testing, in this case, to bring their sin to the forefront of their minds and ultimately lead them to repentance. And if we truly belong to God, like we should expect him to do the same thing in our lives as well. Like We should expect him to regularly reveal to us our sin and lead us to repentance as a style of life. So hopefully you are, as a Christian, experiencing that quite regularly. And it's also important to be aware that God uses not only the Bible, but also other Christians to point out sins in our lives. Right? That also is a normal and healthy element of the Christian life. So make sure that you're open to that, that you're receptive to other Christians when they come to you in good faith with concern about your life. Proverbs 27, 6 says that wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy 
multiplies, kisses. He flatters you. One of the greatest uh, expressions of love that those of us who are Christians can show to one another is when we gently and graciously help each other see aspects of our lives that are contrary to Scripture. Not with a fault-finding spirit, but with a genuine desire to help each other and to protect each other from things that will otherwise cause harm. How I pray that our church would be that kind of place with those kinds of people. Both the people who are willing to, again, graciously and gently bring sins to others' attention and people who will humbly and graciously receive those concerns that others bring to them. Those kinds of interactions are normal occurrences in a healthy church. And of course, the confidence that we have as Christians is that no matter how much we struggle, no matter how much we stumble, no matter how much sometimes we fall, that God's love for us remains the same. Because his love, dear friends, isn't based on our performance or on how good of a Christian that we manage to be on any given day, but rather on the merits and perfection of his son, Jesus. So we can face our sins honestly with the understanding that God loves and accepts us just as much on our worst day as he does on our best day.